Welcome to Two Inch Heels, an autobiographical novel of my 11-week odyssey backpacking through Western Europe in 1973 at age 18, written and read by me, Cooper Zale. This is part 40, Hugo. Tired, sad, and homesick, on an overnight train from Munich to Amsterdam on a frigid night, I encounter a man who looks into my soul, sees my loneliness, and then reaches out to give me a little taste of home, at his home, in the little Dutch village of Best. It was Saturday evening, December 1st, when I parted company with Angelica and Helmut and left Munich on the train headed west towards Ulm and on to Amsterdam. Since my student rail pass did not allow me to sit in first-class coaches, I had learned to board a train at either the very first or very last second-class coach so I could walk through all those coaches and check out every possible compartment without having to double back. In this case, I had boarded at the very back, and walking forward, I had found none with other young backpackers like me or other young people I might share my current passage with. All the compartments were very full, so in the forwardmost second-class coach, I finally entered one with what looked like one big family, with mom, dad, a young male teen, and two younger female children. In theory, there should have been a six-seat for me, though the compartment was pretty full with the five of them and all their suitcases, tote bags, toys, and other stuff. My thinking on choosing this compartment was that maybe the family would get off at one of the upcoming stops, and then I'd have the compartment to myself. Maybe then another fellow young traveler boarding at a later stop might join me. I slid open the door awkwardly and it banged loudly, causing all the family members to startle and look at me. Assuming they were German, or would at least understand the language, I said, Guten Abend, trying to be as polite as possible as I had crashed their little world, currently encompassing every bit of the compartment, including the overhead racks. As I entered with my big pack on my back, the young male teen said, Ach nein, derisively, and both his parents shushed him sharply with German words they did not understand. His younger sisters were on the bench across from him and his parents, playing on the empty seat between them with Barbie dolls and some pink-to-scale plastic car that the two dolls could sit in. Incongruous to the cold compartment, the two dolls were adorned in sunglasses and skimpy bikinis that barely covered their big, relatively speaking, plastic breasts. Yeah, my libido even noticed details like that. The teen barked out something at them in German, echoing the tone that his parents had used with him. The girls frowned at him and kept playing, apparently not about to take orders from their brother. Then the mom said something to them in a more modulated tone, and the two girls squirmed and pouted, Finally, the dad said something sharply that sounded akin to obey your mother. The younger of the two, sitting farthest from the outside window, grabbed the car with its seated Barbies and took it on her lap. The older one sidled over next to her, 
theatrically demonstrating what to me looked like all manner of passive-aggressive submission. Given the whole family dynamic I had just witnessed, I was tempted to turn around and try my luck in another compartment. But since they had made the effort to clear me at least a seat, I felt it would be rude on my part not to accept and sit down. With them all pretty much still watching me, I unshouldered my pack as gingerly as I could to ensure that it did not come close to hitting any of them, a scenario I did not even want to imagine. The mom and dad were nervously scanning the full luggage racks, loaded with all their stuff, presumably to see where and how I might stash my pack. I sat down in the now free seat across from them by the window and rested my pack against the window just in front of me. The dad stood up and with hand gestures indicated that he would try to find room somehow for my pack in one of the racks. I shook my head and said in my minimal German, Dankeschön, es gut, and was glad to see him finally relax back into his seat. As the train rolled across the Bavarian countryside, the snow was falling outside and the windy cold caused condensation on the inside of the compartment window to freeze in spots. I kept my down jacket on, but unzipped to get just the right balance of warmth and airflow, so I was neither too hot nor too cold. Though I felt lonely, doubly so amongst his family in my compartment with their difficult family dynamic. I could not board a train and look out the window at the world going by with the snow on the ground and even falling without feeling that primal excitement of adventure. My body now still, my mind started to do its own traveling and I thought about Angelica and Helmet and how I would like to have a woman in my life like Angelica. She was sweet and caring and had that great childlike energy while at the same time being determined and mature. It was that combination that made me so attracted to her, both platonically and sexually. My close friend Angie, who I'd begun my European odyssey with, and her best friend and my close friend Lane, who had conceived the backpack through Europe plan originally with Angie that I'd joined in on, were both like younger versions of Angelica, with that same sort of energy. But Angelica, being seven years older than the three of us, seemed much more comfortable in her skin than Angie Lane or certainly me. I craved that level of comfort myself, and thus a romantic relationship with someone mature like Angelica. Someone who understood and would be forthright about her needs, so I could then navigate to meet those needs and be her partner. That, rather than the young women more my age who generally were struggling like I was to figure out who the hell they were and what they wanted. I pondered what my needs were in a relationship, and it seemed obvious to me now, after a number of experiences, that I craved intimacy, honesty, and total acceptance of one another. I wanted the two of us to be able to stand naked in front of each other metaphorically, if not physically as well, let it all hang out, as the hippie slogan went, and acknowledge the other and all their quirks and uniqueness without judgment. Not that it was readily achievable, 
but I still long for this sort of close connection with all my closest comrades, whether they were male or female, whether the relationship was romantic or just friends. There was a tenderness that I expressed towards my closest friends, female or male, and drew out from them in return that I think was more conventionally part of romantic relationships rather than platonic ones. But even with my closest male friends back home, Jerry, Avi, and Clark, we shared that intimacy, if not physically, still with acceptance and tenderness towards each other. And there was none of that standard male competitiveness and sparring. If they tried any of that with me, I simply surrendered and would not fight back or play along. Thinking about all this, looking out the window at the snowy world as the train rumbled along, sharing its own intimate rhythmic shakes and rattles below me, it occurred to me that that may have been why Steve had propositioned me in our hotel room in Granada. I had been sending signals to him, conventionally interpreted as sexual. I was always tender with him, and I always would surrender rather than spar, except in the most gentle, playful way. That sparring, had I indulged in it, might have more clearly signaled that I was heterosexual. It explained why I almost said yes to his proposition, since it would have been a very intimate, shared experience. It also explained why I was not uncomfortable continuing to travel with him after that night in Granada, and even okay sleeping in the same bed with him in Walter's hotel room, or sleeping next to him, both of us squeezed into my narrow tube tent on that rainy night outside Bar Raub. I thought about Angie and Lane, and when I got back to Ann Arbor, which one of them to perhaps try to pursue a romantic relationship with. It was complicated by the fact that they were best friends, and I was attracted to both of them. To pursue one felt like I was saying that my feelings for the other were not as great, which would not be true. At some level, I had hoped that having Angie alone without Lane for three months might have created a space for kindling a romantic relationship between us. It might have taken shy me that long, even spending every day traveling together, to get comfortable with having that sort of thing with her. But it didn't play out that way, and when she decided to bail on our joint journey and return to the States, it became my own personal odyssey a very different sort of thing. As I had hoped, the German family in my compartment got off the train at Ulm. No new passengers entered, so I had it to myself as the train pulled out of the station and continued on its way through the frigid, cold, snowy night, the wind now strong enough to noticeably buffet the train with its strongest gusts, more ice building up on the inside of the window. I moved to the far side of the coach, away from the window, and zipped up my down jacket. I felt a chill run through my body along with a wave of sadness, and I suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, felt totally alone in a big strange world. Just a moment ago I had been sitting, nestled in my now so familiar orange jacket in the midst of that family with their discomforting dynamic cozily looking out the window at the cold snowy night 
having insights into the big picture of how I made relationships with others and thinking about the possibility of forging a new romantic relationship with one of my friends back home. Now I suddenly felt like I had been away from home far too long and life was going on there and somehow passing me by. That sense of impending oblivion that had overcome me in the tunnel under the Alps had returned with no burst out of the darkness ahead to jar me out of that troubling headspace. At the next big stop in Stuttgart, my near-empty compartment attracted two passengers who had just boarded the train. They stumbled in, laughing at their clumsiness and seeming obviously tipsy. It was a fifty-something white guy, paunchy and balding, dressed under his wool coat in a very wrinkled, worse-for-wear black suit with the collar of his white dress shirt unbuttoned. With him was a forty-something black guy, wearing a navy peacoat and cotton drawstring pants, a long gaunt face, bristling with whiskers and looking a bit rumpled. Though tipsy himself, he seemed a lot more together than his older comrade and shepherded him into the compartment and down on the bench opposite me. The black guy looked at me with dark, twinkling, knowing eyes that felt uncomfortably like they could look into the depths of my soul. He spoke with an obvious Caribbean accent. Guessing correctly, I spoke English. My new friend Willie shared his bottle of schnapps with me, and I think he's had a bit too much. Caught by surprise by their theatrical entrance, breaking the spell of my heightened aloneness, Shy me didn't know quite what to say, and I just smiled in my own friendly and tender way. He furrowed his brow as he studied my completely nonverbal response, but then softened as he got whatever assurance in my look or from somewhere deeper inside me. He spoke to me in his deep, well-modulated voice. My friend, referring to me now, you look like you've been on a long, long journey. This seemed to confirm that he was able to see into me, and so many feelings welled up that I choked up a little and still could not push words out of my mouth, and that fact made me feel like I was being overwhelmed by some incomprehensible abyss. The best I could respond was a nod. He continued to look into me way too deeply for my comfort, processing the fact that I was somehow struggling to respond. Where is home? he asked. That last word resonated its long O sound in his mouth, and with all that word's lifetime of connotations. I was desperate to undo whatever metaphysical gag was silencing me, and I managed to barely say only, The States. He nodded. Then I managed a bit more and said, Ann Arbor, Michigan. He nodded, smiled, and tried to repeat my words, America. Michigan, and Harbor. Regaining a bit of my composure, I corrected him and explained that my hometown was named after two women named Anne, who settled the town with their husbands and were into planting things, thus the name Arbor. He asked me how long I had been away from home, and I said almost ten weeks. I told him I would be returning in another ten days, and that I was anxious to get home. He smiled and nodded like he already had figured that out. In his deep, melodious voice, he said, My name is Hugo, and I'm a traveler too. Then continuing, I grew up in Curaçao, in the Dutch West Indies, 
but now I live in the Netherlands and travel around Europe for my work. Then with a twinkle in his eye, like you, I am headed home, but will be there nine days earlier than you, my friend. Again, the word home spoken with that long O sound, making it most evocative. He continued to share with me the details of his story. He worked construction jobs wherever he could find them. His current job was in Innsbruck, Austria. Just one of many souls, he said, working on a large office complex. He kept putting up a finger and excusing himself to speak German to his friend, who was sitting next to him slumped against the side wall of the compartment, barely conscious. Hugo told me he and his friend had met a couple hours earlier in the Stuttgart train station waiting for the train, and that his friend, Willie, had been kind enough to share a bottle of schnapps with him. It was like Hugo wanted to make sure that he did not ignore his friend just because he was now talking to me. Hugo waxed effusively about how good people were, telling me stories about his co-workers who were all nice to him and worked long hours to make money for their families back home. He told me how he had met Willie in the station in Stuttgart and how his new friend had bought him dinner and shared that bottle of schnapps. He smiled at me and said, I know you are a good person too. It is my pleasure to make your acquaintance. Willie was now completely passed out and slumped against the compartment wall, snoring with his mouth open and drool dribbling out. Hugo looked at me and chuckled, his eyes twinkling again. Please forgive my friend Willie. He has had a very long day. He gently put two fingers under Willie's chin and pushed his mouth closed, then adjusted his head so he stopped snoring. The train continued to rattle forward through the cold, snowy night, buffeted by each big gust of wind. It was now close to midnight, and a layer of ice had formed on the entire inside of the window, distorting the view outside to just occasional small patches of now unfocused light in otherwise darkness. Like those bits of light, I felt like our existences were all so tenuous, like we might have already passed over to some other realm. I was grateful that Hugo continued to talk about his life, and his narrative and melodious voice kept me anchored in some semblance of reality and even a degree of comfort. I apologize for talking so much, he said. I am sure you have a story to tell as well. I chuckled and shook my head, because listening to his voice and story was soothing my tattered soul. It sounds like you've had an interesting life, I noted and I hope that mine will be a story worth telling as well someday. I told him about living with my mom and younger brother, about my beautiful tree-filled town of Ann Arbor, that my mom and dad were divorced and my dad lived 200 miles south of us, but came often to visit or take us down to spend weekends with him. I told him about my friend Angie and some of the highlights of my trip so far, and finally that I was looking forward to spending Christmas with my family my mom, dad, and brother, at my Aunt Pat's house. I said that I'd certainly had had a great journey these past ten weeks in Europe, but now all I wanted to do was get home. I think you will have a grand story to tell when you get back to your home. Then he looked deep into me again and said, But until then, I would like to take you at least to my home, to spend the day with my girlfriend, her children, and me. Feel all the love we have for each other, and how you, as my friend, will feel that love as well. Then we will put you back on your train to Amsterdam.
His offer caught me by surprise and actually made me uncomfortable. I had accepted such offers during my trip from other white Europeans, but even though he spoke beautiful English, his skin was black. Based on his own rumpled clothing and his life's experience, I had presumed he wasn't of or hadn't risen to that professional and academic class of people that I was most comfortable around. That class my parents had aspired to make us part of and represented most of the people in my neighborhood back home or those kids I went to school with or called friends. I fretted that he might be trying to take advantage of me. I would not have called myself racist or even somewhat prejudiced, but I had never been in a black person's home. Though I had several members of my theater company that I had worked closely with who were black, I had never been in their homes, been with their families, been in their worlds. They had always been in the shared world of our high school and our theater group, a world that was for me comfortably middle class, academic, and white. Though I was uncomfortable with his offer, I was even more uncomfortable at the thought of making some excuse and saying no. Hugo had reached out to me, listened to my heart, and responded from his own. So how could I call myself a good person and refuse? So I told him I would like that, and hoped he could not intuit my misgivings and inner conflict. We finally both quieted, and with the continued rhythmic rattling of the train and the sense of an oncoming abyss lessened, I lost consciousness and slept. I woke briefly when the train came into Trier, which was a major stop in Willie's destination. His friends still pretty hungover and struggling to regain consciousness, Hugo, still a bit worse for wear himself, had exited the compartment briefly and returned with a cup of hot coffee for him. Willie drank it, and as he regained some of his cognitive faculties, he thanked Hugo profusely in German. Hugo then carried Willie's suitcase and helped him off the train to the platform, where apparently Willie's wife was waiting for him. When Hugo finally returned to the compartment, I kept my eyes closed and pretended to be asleep, and soon was again for real. It was a bit before 8 a.m. when the first light of the winter morning came through the train window, now with a thicker layer of ice on the inside from the frigid northern wind that had blown against it all night. Hugo was still asleep and snoring when I woke, snuggled in his pea coat with arms tightly wrapped around his body to stay warm both of us sitting up against the inner compartment wall away from the window and the cold that infiltrated through it. I foraged through my pack and found my remaining half loaf of now fairly stale bread and the remaining end of a salami. Hugo awoke just as I started eating and I offered him some of my remaining provisions. He gratefully and graciously accepted. We have now broken bread together, my friend, he noted. He rummaged through his duffel bag and produced a tin of sardines, removing the key from the bottom of the rectangular container and using it to crank and unpeel the thin strip of metal around the sides that then allowed him to pull open the lid. The greasy salami and oily, salty sardines tasted particularly good in that cold train compartment. And then each of us took turns sopping up the remaining pool of oil in the sardine tin with our last chunks of bread. When the conductor came by calling out Hugo's Eindhoven stop, it was fully light outside, 
the rays of a now sunny morning pushing through our icy compartment outside window. Hugo reiterated that he wanted me to come with him, and at least for today, to feel like this was my home too. Still a bit uneasy, but hopefully not revealing it, I shouldered my pack and followed him off the train and onto the platform of the station. The wind was no longer blowing, and the extreme overnight cold had subsided somewhat, giving way to a crisp wintry day. The station was surrounded by a small plaza with big modern-looking multi-story apartment buildings with storefronts in the ground level and obviously well-manicured trees and other landscaping surrounding them. Hugo said that much of this industrial city of some 200,000 people had been wrecked by Allied bombing during World War II, including most of the older buildings, giving the now-rebuilt city its contemporary look. We walked to the nearby bus station, and it was just a 10-minute ride to the village of Best in the northern suburbs of the city. The village looked very modern and affluent, neat rows of similar-looking two-story houses all covered with a thick frosting of white, with the streets between them obscured by maybe six inches of fresh snow. We walked down one of those neat rows to the last house, through a side door and up a narrow staircase to an upstairs apartment. As we tromped up the stairs, my big pack still on my back and my clunky hiking boots banging against each wood step, he called out, Hello! and I heard voices of two young people speaking a language that sounded like German, but with an occasional more English-sounding word mixed in. At the top of the stairs, a tall, slender white woman appeared, wearing an oversized sweatshirt that came down to her upper thighs and what looked like pajama bottoms and bedroom slippers. She had a careworn face and long, straight blonde hair knotted up into a messy bun held tenuously together by a rubber band. They embraced and kissed, rather passionately, I thought. She allowed his hand to find and gently squeeze her butt cheek, but then wriggled out of his grasp with a sheepish mock scowl that I figured signaled the sexual aspect of their relationship. She noted me, but with no great surprise or concern, and I pondered that I might not have been the first stray stranger Hugo had brought home. Disengaged from the hug, he explained to her in some length who I was in Dutch, and then translated for me briefly that he told her we met on the train. She nodded and sized me up while he spoke, then wiped her hand on her sweatshirt and reached out for mine, shaking it and speaking in English. I'm Femka. Welcome to our home. Entering the apartment, I saw two young teens sitting on the couch watching TV, the voices I had heard earlier a daughter that looked a lot like her mom, with the same long, straight blonde hair, but hers hanging down to mid-torso. Her brother, who looked roughly the same age, twins perhaps, with that same hair but cut above the shoulders in a sort of page boy. Hugo waved to the two of them, and they responded in kind, both looking comfortable with his presence on the scene. I followed suit and waved as well, and they both nodded sheepishly. At Hugo's suggestion, I unslung my pack and stowed it in a small closet in the compact main room that was living room, dining room, and kitchen of the small apartment. After more conversation between the two of them, in that German-like language that I assumed must be Dutch, Hugo suggested we sit at the small dining room table. Femke's kids, 
Yvonne and Robin, eventually joined us when the TV show they were watching ended. As the rest of us sat at the table, Femka put a pot from the refrigerator on the stove and pulled out a loaf of sliced bread from the cupboard and a big block of cheese and proceeded to make grilled cheese sandwiches with a big saucepan. Normally in situations like this, though I'd never been in a situation quite like this one, I would make the attempt to make conversation, but I was still kind of engulfed in my feelings. Luckily, Hugo spoke up, sharing the story of his past couple months in Innsbruck. He spoke in Dutch and then in English for me, as Femke ladled out the soup and gave us each a grilled cheese sandwich. The construction project that Hugo was working on was now shut down for the holidays to resume in January, which had allowed him to come home. I ate hungrily while I listened to his story. Trying to acknowledge me, or at least my country, in the conversation, he noted that there was a monument in Eindhoven to a U.S. soldier who died in the city during the war. The soldier had fallen on a grenade to save 20 of his comrades. He was a good man, Hugo noted, but not a hero. That is a word for someone who makes a big deal of their act. Hugo seemed obsessed with selfless acts for others, even at the expense of oneself. But thinking about that young American soldier who died on that grenade did not make me feel proud or inspired, but only saddened me, thinking of the lengths one might have to go to be worthy of praise, which increased my melancholy. I fear we have not made you feel at home, Hugo noted, picking up at some level my continued sadness. As I pondered how to respond, I could hear neighborhood children playing outside in the snow, shouting and laughing. I recalled my own fond memories of winter days when my dad would take my brother and me to the Arboretum in our hometown. We would sled down the hills while our dad smoked his pipe and read a book, occasionally asking to join one of us on our sled to go down a hill together. I could remember the nice smell of his pipe tobacco on his jacket as he sat behind me on the sled and wrapped his arms around me as we pushed off and down the hill. As the four of them quieted and looked at me, I finally managed to say something. You have made me feel welcome, made me feel at home, and I thank you all for that. I found myself speaking like Hugo would, but I could not stop the tears welling up in my eyes. Wiping them back and trying not to sob, I attempted to make the case in halting words that I was not unhappy, just sad, missing my own home. I have been away from home for ten weeks and have had many great experiences that I am grateful for, I said, but still I am ready to go home. I continued by telling them about the wonderful time I had had in Grindelwald, which I had left just two days ago, though it seemed like much longer the hostel there, the snow, and the awe-inspiring mountains. Then I told further back about my time in Italy, foggy, sultry Venice, princely Florence, and eternal Rome. Through the tears, though I only talked about the places in each city I had been, I thought about the people I had met in those places, particularly the women I had befriended, whom I would probably never see again. Though I did not share this with my current hosts, it was dawning on me that the sadness I was feeling was not merely being homesick, but also grieving the people I was leaving behind, 
And one of the people I might leave behind was this new me, this Coopster. Here in Europe, I had come to a new place, particularly when I was traveling on my own, and no one would know me. Certainly that was hard for shy me to make new connections with people. But one advantage to always having to make new friends was that I could more easily try on a new persona, like playing a character in a new play, try on some swagger and some pluck. It had been Jen that saw the coopster in me, expected me to be that character, and I had risen to her expectation, playing the part, as it were. Then others I met interacted with me, comfortable with that new persona, not knowing any better. No old friends around to say, What's with you? You've changed. You're not the same person I've become comfortable with, trying to drag you back to who you were. It's not that I wasn't the same person who had left Ann Arbor ten weeks ago, but I was a new version of that person, and that new version of me seemed still tenuous, and I was afraid it might not accompany me back across the Atlantic, where people might expect me to be who I'd been before. I might not be brave enough to bring it home with me. Again in the moment, Hugo, Femke, and her kids nodded that they understood as the tears continued to well up in my eyes. We all just sat there around their small kitchen table. Yvonne and Robin seemed intrigued and even moved by my tears and the sadness behind them. I was also starting to feel ashamed of myself for my initial prejudiced fears that when Hugo, a black man, invited me to come to his home that he might have ill intent. Had I overcome those fears and gone with Hugo because my sense of ethics triumphed in the end, or was it just that I was too much of a chicken shit to say no? And after all that, ironically, here in his home, Hugo was as much a denizen of the white people's world as I was. Femka finally got up and busied herself doing the dishes, Hugo getting up to help her but also suggesting something in Dutch to Yvonne and Robin, which sent them busily back to the area around the TV set, looking through piles of papers. After a few moments, Robin sheepishly approached me. Do you want to see Star Trek on TV? he said. He and his sister had found it in the newspaper TV schedule listings, and it would start in just a few minutes. I nodded, still teary, Femke had made hot chocolate for everyone as we gathered on the couch and chairs around their small black-and-white TV. She cuddled up next to Hugo, with her daughter on her other side, and Robin and I sitting in the chairs. It was one of the more forgettable episodes where Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beamed down to a desert planet with that often-used set with the big boulders. The familiarity and mundaneness of it calmed me somehow along with the catharsis from the tears and words I had just shared. The dialogue was in English, Dutch subtitles. When Kirk said, Set phasers to stun, a long, many-syllable Dutch word appeared in the subtitle phrase, presumably the translation of phaser. At the end of the show, Femke said that the train to Amsterdam would be stopping at the best station soon and asked Robin to take me there it being just a five-minute walk from the house. Unlike my train from Munich, it was a Dutch train that stopped at all the little stations, and not just the big cities like Eindhoven. 
She wrapped an extra grilled cheese sandwich in wax paper for me to eat on the train. I thanked them all profusely for their hospitality. I was tempted to give Hugo a hug, but he thrust out his hand to me instead, grasping mine held out in response. Femka followed his lead and shook my hand as well, her soft and warm from the dishwater. Yvonne held out her hand rather limply, and I took it, doing all the shaking for the two of us. Robin put on his jacket and knit cap from the closet, looking empowered as he stood by the stairway down to the outside door to their apartment. His mom said something to him in Dutch, and he nodded and scowled a bit, as if she was unnecessarily telling him something he already knew. I donned all my outdoor gear, shouldered my pack, thanked the rest of them one last time and followed him down the staircase and back out into the cold, crisp day. We walked together in silence down the street. The snow, which had been that pristine white sheet when Hugo and I had walked to the house earlier, was now full of human footprints. Younger kids were out and about, throwing snowballs or building snowmen and other things in the snow. Two younger boys crossed the street, called out to Robin, and he gave them a small nod in response. A girl, who looked his age, called out to him as well, waving animatedly. Robin smiled a bit nervously, looked at me, and then waved back at her. It occurred to me that if I had been a young teen in Robin's place, accompanying an older male as he was, Due to my extreme shyness at that age, I might not have responded at all to that girl I knew. Seeing all the kids engage in their own lives and presumably their own struggles, and thinking of my own, George Harrison's insightful lyric played in my mind's jukebox again, as it had so many times, its question biting like never before. When you've seen beyond yourself, then you may find peace of mind is waiting there. And the time will come when you see we're all one, and life flows on within and without you. At the station, Robin asked me in English if I needed help buying my ticket. I wondered if he had come up with that on his own or his mom had told him to offer. I told him I had a rail pass but thanked him for asking and walking me to the station. He nodded his head somewhat vigorously and I felt intuitively his need to be acknowledged as more than just a kid, just a child, that word having such a derogatory meaning when hurled by one adult at another. I struggled with what to say to him a young teen, that would acknowledge him as a unique human being. I did not know what his interests or passions were, and this late moment, when we were about to say goodbye, presumably never to see each other again, did not seem like the appropriate time to ask. I decided it would acknowledge and honor him if I spoke candidly to him about myself, trusted him with my candid thoughts. I tried to do so with the most simple English words and sentence structure I could muster so we would understand it all. I told him that I had started the trip with my good friend Angie, who was just a friend and not my girlfriend. He nodded in a way to indicate that he got that important distinction. Then I said that if I was honest with myself, 
I had hoped that during our long trip together, we might become boyfriend and girlfriend. And that when she told me she was going to go home after just one week, that I was turned upside down. I could see he did not understand that term, and I tried to say it more simply as unhappy and not sure what to do, and he finally nodded. I told him I was afraid to continue alone, but my pride would not let me return home without completing my entire journey. He nodded vigorously at that last statement, as if he really understood and appreciated that conflict. He looked me in the eyes and said, And you did it. You finished your journey, and now you can go home. He gave me his biggest smile. Then he got more pensive and said, I want to travel too, like you have, and see the whole world. The train was coming into the station with more of a whoosh than a chug. It was a Dutch train, very sleek and modern looking. The engine and all the coaches painted yellow, with red lines forming abstract designs along the sides. My mom would certainly have appreciated that. I stuck out my hand and Robin shook it vigorously. I thanked him again and told him to tell his mom, Hugo, and his sister how much their hospitality had meant to me. Tears started to fill my eyes again, and I could see that he noticed, and he nodded his head thoughtfully and got quiet. I turned away from him, pack on my back, and climbed on the beautiful yellow train. So concludes the 40th chapter of Two Inch Heels. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next chapter where I arrive in cold, rainy, but beautiful and friendly Amsterdam and follow Beth's recommendation to seek out the Christian Youth Hostel.